This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, we've got a duo for you on the podcast. I think this is the first time ever. This is the first time ever, actually, that we've had two people on the podcast at the same time, and there's a good reason for it because these guys are the best-selling co-author team that goes by Andrews and Wilson. So that is Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. So they are the co-author team of thrillers like the Tier 1 thrillers, Sons of Valor, and their latest book, which we're going to be speaking a lot about today, which is called Dark Intercept. So both of these guys are U.S. military veterans. Both kind of come from very different parts of the United States military. But it was a very, very interesting interview for me because I didn't really know what I was walking into. Because sometimes when you talk with, you know, nonfiction writers or, or sorry, fiction writers, rather, you're just like, okay, I don't know, are these people going to be super cerebral? Are they going to be in their heads the entire time? How's this discussion going to go? They're a co-author team. How exactly does that work? Like if any of you guys have been in a, a writing project where there are multiple people involved, like in college or grad school or something like that, you know, it's one person that does most of the writing, one person that kind of helps and the rest of the people you're dragging across the finish line. So I did actually ask them a lot about that, but it was a very, very interesting interview. You guys already were familiar with them because they did a little bit with our botching Afghanistan series as well. So I know a lot of you guys got some value out of that, but guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, great to be here, my friend. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. I'm so glad to have y'all here, but we're going to start super basic. I hate when people start out interviews like this, but this is just kind of the easiest thing for to kind of get you introduced to my audience. So I want you each to briefly talk about your backgrounds because y'all both had some circuitous routes of how you got to, to being best-selling authors. So both of you <laughs> kind of give me the SparkNote version of your background and how you ended up writing. Yeah, so um, I'll, I guess I'll start. Um, I'm Jeff. I'm the um, the handsome half of the Andrews and Wilson brand. Obviously, um, you know my background is is reads a little bit like fiction. I'm sure you noticed. I've done a thousand different things. My wife and my mom both think I just can't keep a job, but um, I've done a huge number of things. But I've been in and out of the military my whole life. My family, I come from a family that values service, uh, family, and faith above all things, and so. Uh, for me, it was a natural thing. I, I worked as a firefighter paramedic, went into the military to become a fighter pilot, was in a motorcycle accident and that didn't work out and uh, went and flew civilian for a while and then found myself in another uh, branch of the federal government working uh, at some things that involved violence of action. And as a young man, it turned out that wasn't as cool and as exciting as I had imagined from the TV shows I'd seen. Uh, I, I was proud of what I did, but it was it was hard on me at, at such a young age. So I shifted away from that and uh, went to medical school to become a vascular surgeon and live a life of peace. And uh, while I was finishing up my training, I had stayed in the Naval Reserves. I just always felt I needed to do something to serve. Uh, but I was just going to be the doc, right? And uh, then they crashed those planes into the towers. And like everybody in America, it, it just pissed me off beyond belief. And so I called my detailer and 
told him I want to go back on active duty. He said, okay, we'll get you mobilized. I was like, no, you don't understand. I have a regular commission. I want to be back on active duty. So I made that transition and, um, that changed like all of us, everyone on this podcast and most people listening changed the entire trajectory of my life. I deployed with the Marines as a, uh, first team surgeon, the devil docs. While I was downrange, I ran into some people from my weird past and, uh, Got a weird phone call when I got home asking if I wanted to meet with some dudes to do some stuff. And so I wound up with a East Coast based SEAL team where I provided uh, combat medical support and training uh, and made a few deployments with that group. Later, wound up in some task force kind of situations. I'm sure you know what that's all about. Um, and eventually, to my wife's delight, I was able to slowly transition. I think you can appreciate that transition is very difficult in a war that goes on forever and you have brothers still downrange. Uh, so like a lot of people, I, I didn't just stop. I slowly pulled out of that world. And although during that entire time, I was writing um, and uh, I've always written since I was 12 years old or so. Started writing novel length works while I was still in the military and uh, met Brian and we started writing together. So that's my bizarre story. And I left out as many things as I could because Brian says when I tell all the things that people think I'm a liar. So I left those out, Brian. Well, we don't, you know, we're going to get all the things out at some point in this interview. <laughs> so we don't have to feel too much pressure there. You know, what about you, Brian? Yeah. So I don't have quite the litany of, uh, of experiences, Jeff. And I did tell him that I thought his author bio read like uh, that it was fake and he needed to change it. And he said, but it's all true. <laughs> so he's sticking with it. And uh, after after writing with him for as many years as I have, I can attest that all these things are true. So he's quite an impressive dude, in fact. Um, as for me, I'm a Kansas-born, uh, corn-fed Midwestern guy. I grew up here in, in the Midwest. And... Um, went to public high school and didn't have a, a, a litany of service in my family. I'm the first uh, man in, in, in my genera in generations to serve in the U.S. military, which is something I'm very proud of. Um, I went to Vanderbilt University on an ROTC scholarship, a Navy ROTC scholarship. And I was a psychology major, learning how the brain works and why people think the weird things that we think and do the weird things that we do. And then I sort of did a very bizarre 180 pivot and uh, found myself um, joining the nuclear submarine service, which is something I never planned to do, never in a million years imagined that that's what I would end up doing. But that's sort of the direction that my life took. So I uh, spent five years underwater on a fast attack nuclear submarine based out of Pearl Harbor doing really, really cool stuff, this type of stuff you see and in the movies and, and some stuff that you don't see in the movies. And that's probably even the more cool stuff. Um, and then after that, while I was in, uh, in the Navy, I got married to a beautiful, wonderful, supportive woman. And we sort of made the decision that, you know, we could either, I could either be married to the Navy or be married to my wife. And I kind of had to choose one or the other. I mean, that's not true. There's amazing uh, women out there who support their, husbands and husbands who support their wives in service for an entire career. But for us, we decided that the best thing for us, given the operational tempo and some of the other family plans and goals that we had, it was time to, to get out. So uh, I transitioned and, and uh, had a wonderful opportunity at Cornell University to do the Park Leadership Fellow Program, which is a leadership-centric fellowship, two years of servant leadership training 
while I was getting my MBA. And uh, so that was a fantastic experience and then got out and did some entrepreneurial things for the next, I don't know, eight to 10 years. But during that time that I was growing business, I also had this passion for writing and storytelling. And so it was sort of doing that on the side and what if, what if I could make this happen and, and uh, met Jeff at a writer's conference. We can get into that story a little bit later. Um, and then, you know, had published a couple of books on my own, but really it wasn't until, um, and we'll talk about this too later, the sort of the force multiplier effect, the collaboration effect of working with a fellow veteran. That's really when the, the writing career took off. And, and that's where I am today. Well, let's kind of get into that because I just got to be honest, writing something by yourself is difficult enough for most people. But the only thing I can think of that's harder than that is trying to write something with someone else, right? I mean, just go back. I mean, yeah, you got your MBA. Like I got my MBA. When you had to write a paper with other people and drag them across the finish line and all that, like, and it, it's hard to kind of coalesce styles and writing styles and all that. So I guess the, the easiest way to ask that is like, how do you guys pull that off? Yeah. And, and the way you described it is exactly what what we don't have going on, which is why it works that, you know, we've all been in that group education setting where there's two people who do nothing, one person that does a little and someone that does 90%, right? And if, <laughs> if you are in a co-writing situation like that, writing fiction, writing novels, that's pointless and nobody would ever do that. But, you know, being military guys, all three of us, I think this is, and, and many of your listeners who have served, this will resonate. You know, you spend your time in the military getting you know, trained, almost, almost molded into this uh, life of service where mission and team are put before self and it becomes a part of who you are. And so as writers, because we come from that shared background, we were very intentional, very, very early on, like most military dorks. And we sat down and we wrote out what our, what our mission was, what our goals were, you know, how we were going to combine our efforts, who would bring what to the table. So we, we laid all that out. But the most important thing we did was we put ego aside and we said, look, if we're going to do it together, it's not going to be you writing some and me writing some and mine was better or yours was better. It's going to be you and I as a team are going to write something. And our mission is going to be to create the greatest, most exciting novel we can. And if we can do it that way, then there won't be any lame guy not doing anything or someone half-assing it. And so we were able to do that just because of that shared experience and background, I think. Um, and we just sit down, we brainstorm something out, and we work together writing simultaneously, which seems a little bizarre to many of our fellow writers. But you know, we divide things up and write at the same time. He's writing some chapters. I'm writing some chapters. And we swap them back and forth and rewrite them together. And I swear, this sounds like something you say on in an interview, but I swear to you, when the book is done, there are many chapters where I can't tell you who wrote that, the, who wrote the rough draft. I just don't remember. It just doesn't matter because everyone's touched it. And in the end, it's just our project. So I think for people without that shared experience and background, co-authoring, you're right. It would be just like you remember from your that college colloquium, right? It would be a horror show. But for us, because of that approach, I think it works really well. Brian, what about you? Because, I mean, Jeff's given the really nice perspective, but I'm assuming there's some more accuracy to go on. <laughs> Jeff's, you know, Jeff's just kind of blowing that. smoke right now because we're still, yeah, we're still early in the interview. Brian, can you give me the real story, please? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> again, it sounds fake. It sounds like this is just our spiel. Um, but luckily, our spiel is sort of our real life. So, you know, if you think about SEAL training, you know, you can't have one guy carrying the boat by himself. It's right. just physically impossible. Same with operating a nuclear submarine. 
There's a crew of 100 people on there. It's too complicated, too difficult to do by yourself. Now, writing is not too complicated, too difficult to do by yourself. But running a business, that's pretty hard and complicated to do by yourself. And I think we approach this in the beginning, you know, that first book, it's, hey, we're co-authoring to write this book. But now as our brand has evolved and we are partners in this venture, it really is a venture. It's a business. We have a brand and there's a lot more to selling books than just writing the book. I mean, there's the entire marketing component and publicity. There's all the accounting that goes with it and all the travel and networking and interaction. And and we're starting to get into some stuff that has to do with television. And so that's exciting too. So when you work all these elements in, you realize this is really too much for just one person to do entirely by themselves and do at an A plus level. So we really figured out pretty quickly because things were coming at us fast. Okay, Jeff's best at this, I'm best at that. What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? And so we divide up all of the work and it happened very naturally. And it wasn't, it wasn't something we had to fight about because I think two things. One, like Jeff said, our military background made us very comfortable with this idea of specializing in you you carry the load for time and other than that, then you pass the load and the other guy carries the load. So that that's sort of in our DNA. But I think the other thing to think about, and um, this is just something we could maybe talk about later in the podcast as well. Um, you know, you have to reach a point in your life where you become secure with what you're good at and what you're not. And you really have to figure out, you know, if my ego is always getting in the way of my decisions and my interactions with people, I'm not going to be the best that I can be, right? Because I'm too worried about what I'm insecure about to be really focusing on the job at hand. And so we've tried to sort of put our egos in the drawer, look ourselves in the mirror and say, okay, Jeff's better at this than I am. And I'm okay with him taking the lead on this and doing it because I don't have to be the star of the show and Jeff doesn't have to be the star of the show. And for us, that's been both cathartic, but also incredibly, incredibly productive. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why, I don't know if either of you have much uh, of a background with jujitsu. That's one of the reasons why I encourage men to get into jujitsu, because that is the biggest ego killer in the world, because every day you walk in there, you die a little bit, right? And then you get these little rays of light that poke through every now and then, but it's you're constantly having to put the ego to the side, as Ryan Holiday would say, ego is the enemy. But I think that actually goes into something from y'all's media kit that I really keyed in on that I wanted to ask you about. There's a quick quote from the media kit. It says, they write action, adventure, and covert operations novels honoring the heroic men and women who serve in the military and intelligence communities. So it's a service idea. It's a service brand, right? So for me, having grown up around the military, but having never actually served myself, which is one of my bigger lifetime regrets, that's something that I was very interested in that y'all are writing these books with a particular purpose because yes, this is a business. Yes, we, we work in a world where you have to give your time and talent in exchange for money and that's what you all are doing, but there seems to be some sort of a higher purpose. So I'd like to kind of hear from both of you mm-hmm. about kind of, why do you do that? Yeah. So I think that it's fun for us that you keyed into that. And it's something that is part of the writing as well as part of the business side of it. Like Brian was saying, from the creative side of it, it comes down to just how we approach creative writing, right? So when you're writing action thrillers, there's a lot of models out there for how to do it that date back, you know, back to Ian Fleming and James Bond and all that. Um, from very early on, what we decided 
both of us having, you know, brothers and sisters that are still serving, we decided that while we want it, you have to write an exciting novel, right? It's got to have action. If you wrote what it's really like, you know, for 30 days on a deployment, unless you're with the JSOC unit, it's going to be a lot of sitting around and going to the chow hall and nobody wants to read that book. So you've got to have action and excitement. But we wanted to frame it in a, in a sense that gives a realistic portrait of the men and women that serve and of the families that support them back home. And the way we do that is by trying to write the characters, not necessarily the action thriller plot, but the character and their responses to that as realistically as we can. And what I mean by that is there's always been a tendency in special operations stuff, for example, to have the lone wolf guy who is almost a superhero, indestructible kind of guy. And that's fun. Look, I read those and I watch those movies and I do enjoy them. But we decided from the beginning that we wanted to paint the characters as the amalgam of the people that we have served with. And what makes them so extraordinary, and I've said this before, and people might be getting bored with it, but is how ordinary they are. What's extraordinary about the JSOC guys that I served with is that they are ordinary guys back home. They're taking the garbage down to the curb. They're coaching their kids little league when they can, if time allows. They're picking up milk on the way home. They are ordinary men and women who do an extraordinary thing because they're so driven by their love of their country, their love of their family, uh, their love of their brothers. And so we try to paint that into the fiction from the beginning that we're honoring them through our storytelling by showing what they are like in this incredible world in which they operate. And then, you know, Brian, I'll let you talk about the other side of it, the, you know, what we do with the brand. But I think that that's where it started. Even the, what we do with the brand now to help our fellow veterans all began with that idea of honoring our fellow veterans and military members through the writing. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. And then I think the the logical extension from that is this element of, you know, presenting through character, the principles, the life principles and the motivational principles that we see in those types of people, you know, the, the heroes that are serving, they're also heroes in their daily lives. So we're not nonfiction writers. You've got your out there. You got your Tony Robbins and your and your Jordan Peterson and James Clear. These are people who are writing nonfiction and on the speaker circuit, and they're they're providing a valuable message to help people get their life in order. Jeff and I are providing entertainment, but it's not mindless entertainment. You know what we're doing is we're trying to paint a picture of characters who are based on real people are subjected to some incredibly stressful, difficult situations where their morality and their principles are tested and how do they respond. And so through the adventure, through the action adventure, through the thriller medium, we still can provide a platform for, hey, this is a good way to respond to stress. This is how a hero would respond to stress. This is how a hero reacts when his principles or her morals are tested. And so that, you know, in a weird sort of way, you put down the book and you say, wow, that was an exciting book. I had a lot of fun um, reading that book, but also I feel uplifted or I feel like I can go out there and I can do what, the, what John Dempsey did or I can do what Chunk did or I can do what Jedediah Johnson did um, when I'm put in a situation similar to that. 
Yeah, the thing I think that's important for that as well is it gives depth to the characters as well. Because for me, I'm not as much into the 1980s one man wrecking crew. Like, oh, the guy, the only thing that is, you know, has any depth with the guy is the type of beef jerky he chose to put in his pack <laughs> before he ran out into the woods. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, I kind of like those stories where it's like you've got the super bad dude, but that's got, you know, some other things involved, which is certainly one of the things that we'll talk about with Dark Intercept here in a second. Before we get to the newest novel, I just want to ask another generic question because I'm curious. I know it's generic, but how do you come up with the ideas for your books? You know, how do you decide how much real things to sprinkle in along with all of the, you know, fanciful, incredible things? And then what does the research process look like? Because you described your, your writing process, but I'm sure to get a lot of these things at least accurate enough to where they sound plausible, it takes quite a bit of research. So what does that process look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing that every author worries about is this concept called suspend your disbelief. You don't want your reader in the middle of the book to be like, oh man, like that's a bunch of BS. Like that's not how it is. Especially, you know, when veterans or active duty military personnel are reading our novels, they're, the, they're our client or they're our customer that we want to make sure we get it right for them. Right. So authenticity has always been a big part of our brand. And so part of that authenticity comes from the fact that we're both veterans and we've both served and we both served on, you know, forward engaging platforms and units. And so we, we sort of understand what that life is like. So because we lived it, we can write with authenticity. And that's something that, you know, you, you keyed on, on those, those great books from the eighties, you know, the Ludlum books and the Clancy books. And Jeff and I read those too, and those sucked us into the industry, but those gentlemen did not serve. So, you know, they didn't bring the same level of authenticity, I think, that we do and other veteran authors right now, like Don Bentley and Ward Larson and Josh Hood. You know, we all bring that, I think, to the genre. So that's the first part. And then the second part is the research. And I'll, I'll say just briefly a word on that and I'll hand it off to Jeff and he can continue on it. But I think, you know, if you're an engaged American, you're paying very close attention to current events and geopolitical events. And that's something that Jeff and I do. And we talk about it. And, and it's when we find an idea or something happens that piques our interest, that's the bunny hole. That's when we start going down. Okay, well, what if? Would you agree with that, Jeff? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. A lot of the research is going on before the book even starts, just because we have a you know ongoing interest in world affairs and geopolitics and military defense issues. And so both of us continue to be well-read. We, we stay connected to the community. We continue to read the defense journals. Um, and so we've sort of painted this picture of almost professorial academic type fiction writers. And I'm glad we did that because it's a total lie. That's not who we are. We, we're well-informed children. Um, so the, the reality how the sausage is made is while we both are very engaged and keep that going, there's still that childlike eight-year-old in the backyard with a stick pretending it's a rifle saying, what if? And that's, you know, you would ask, part of your question was, where do the stories come from? That's where the stories come from. The stories come from having that information floating in your head by being well-informed and then having that childlike, hey, what if this happened? And so the, my favorite part of creating any new series or any book within this series is that first few weeks, Brian, when we're on the, he lives, you know, we live 800 miles apart, a thousand miles apart. So this is all done remotely by Zoom and on phone. When we're starting a project, we have this really cool two weeks where we are just those kids in the backyard. And it starts with a very simple, what if question? What if 
the tier one unit was wiped out, like what happened in the very beginning of the tier one series. What if, you know, the new generation of jihadis emerges with more technology, like in Sons of Valor? Or what if there is a spiritual warfare element, like in Dark Intercept? So we start with this big what if question, but then the fun comes. It's like, what about this? Oh, no, dude, what about this? What about this? And it's almost like two kids playing in the background. <laughs> and it is so much fun. And it is so efficient because back to the co-authoring thing, you know, the one real advantage of co-authoring with someone who really does divide and conquer with you is efficiency. Like we are constantly moving forward. There's no such thing as writer's block for us because writer's block, the cure is a phone call away. And five seconds later, you're on a whole new sprint to something really exciting. Um, so the, the stories come from the what if childlike wonder. And I think the research is ongoing, of course, in any good book. We also have to sit and Google stuff and maybe turn to some other sources. We've been really blessed now that we've been blessed with some success. We have a little more opportunity to reach out to other resources that we didn't have before. You know, we always were able to make phone calls to guys back in the teams that we still are connected to or whatever. But for example, um, in the in the uh, collateral book, book six in the tier one series, we had this amazing opportunity to connect with a guy in the Pentagon and say, hey, do you know anyone who skippered a uh, Arlie Burke and sure enough he did and he connected us and we were able to send him stuff and he was got on the phone with us and said great story but that's not how we would do it and so there is a little bit of that but I think the most fun part is just that you know childlike what if coming up with an exciting story and then doing the research to frame it up in a way that's palatable. That's really cool. Well, I feel like all that sets the foundation for the newest novel, which if you guys are paying attention, this book came out today as of the release of this episode, Dark Intercept. What are you doing? Why haven't you gone and bought this book yet? Go buy the book. It's in the show notes. We'll be able to take care of it. But we'll, we'll kind of split up this first part here. So Brian, I'll just ask you, this is apparently book one of the Shepherds series. Okay. So what is the Shepherds series? And I guess what can readers expect without being too much of a spoiler? What can readers express with expect with this three book series? So the Shepherds series is born from this idea that what if, you know, the covert operations teams out there at the pointy tip of the spear, what if firepower was not enough to face the enemy? What if the enemy had a multi-pronged attack? And part of that was flesh and bone and bullets and gunpowder, but another component of that attack was, you know, spiritual and the corruption, moral corruption and depravity and all these negative things that go along with violence, you know, precede violence and proceed violence. And that was sort of the germ. That was like Jeff was talking about that last answer. That was the what if question. What if firepower is not enough to win the battle? And what if there was a group of men and women who realized this? How would they tackle this problem? And so the Shepherds organization, uh, and I don't know if this is too much of a spoiler, but the Shepherds organization was designed specifically to sort of operate not in the shadows. That's not the right metaphor. I would say they're operating shoulder to shoulder with all the other traditional, you know, uh, intelligence community and military industrial complex. They're there alongside. You just don't realize that they have uh, another data stream and, and some more, some more influence going on. 
Okay. Well, we're going to turn this over to Jeff now, I guess. So without spoiling too much, however, I'm big on spoilers. I love it. I love when people get the endings ruined. Like I'm the guy that walked in and told everyone that Thanos ended the world with that. Whatever. <laughs> he's like, guys, he snapped his fingers and Spider-Man disappeared. So I'm, I'm totally down with that. But without spoiling too much, Jeff, right, we'll put the onus on you. What can you tell us about what readers can expect with Dark Intercept? Well, like Brian was saying, this is a this was a, a new direction for us. It, it, well, a slightly new direction. Think of it as a side road that's paralleling our interstate of our other stuff, maybe. Because, you know, we've been writing action thrillers. We've been writing covert operations thrillers for a few years now and with, with a, a lot of success. So I think that if I was going to say something to the readers, I would say uh, – you're going to get all that. Expect that. You know, we still have Jedediah Johnson's a former Navy SEAL. He's wounded. He's on the eve of medical retirement when he gets called back into service in this covert thing to rescue uh, the daughter, a 12-year-old girl who's the uh, daughter of a high school friend of his. And there's a whole social component to that. But um, he is haunted by these demons from his past. And in this case, it's almost more literal in that he had an experience in high school that exposed him to true, pure evil. And those that have served overseas uh, in the last 20 years, all of us have seen real evil and uh, it changes your perspective. It's, it's, it's different than, you know, this country wants to take over this country for economic reasons. This is the kind of evil that, you know, Brian used the word depravity. It's beyond even that. It's, it's evil and it's hard to reconcile that as a, as a human, uh, especially as a Christian and say, that's just man. Like there's something that just feels darker and bigger than that. And so that's the premise that we tried to weave through this, this idea that all of these horrible things you see from World War II and Hitler and terrorism and bin Laden and all of these things, the behind the curtain driving force is this evil force that wants to separate man from God. Now, we don't write this as a religious book by any stretch. This is not designed to, you know, make converts of people, but it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's an interesting premise and put in the, into the context of an action thriller. We're, we're hoping that people will enjoy the thrill ride of the book like they do with most of our books, but also maybe have a conversation at the end because it makes them think about spiritual warfare. What do you do with crisis and faith? Something that's important to me in the ministry that I lead, you know, there's, I work with so many men who, you know, thought they had a faith. They saw these horrible things and they went, it's hard to rectify the existence of a God who loves us with what I saw in the deserts of Iraq or in the mountains of the Hindu Kush. Like if I, if he is out there, he made, doesn't seem like he really cares about us. And so the idea of spiritual warfare, the idea of crisis and faith, which we have in our Jedediah Johnson character, he's got to reconnect with his faith to be able to overcome this evil and rescue this girl. Those were all really fun elements to combine both as writers, because what amazing fodder for creative you know, storytelling, but also as men of faith and family men to be able to sort of put those questions forward and have in our hero Jedediah a guy with a past and weaknesses who has to fight his way back to that. So hopefully that was vague enough that it didn't spoil the story, but um, it does show that there's a little bit different thread that we've pulled through this book than others. But we are so excited about this series because we've been talking about it for years, being able to combine all of these elements into our storytelling. 
Well, and just by virtue of the amount of time that we have, and there's only so much we can talk about, I do want to dig into a lot of that uh, a lot more deeply. So we're not going to really be able to get into the tier one series or the Sons of Valor series or the WEB Griffin rogue asset stuff. So guys, all that will be in the show notes. And obviously there's some great stuff there. All I can tell you is that you should probably go read it. You should probably go check those out. But I do want to dig more into these themes that came up when both of y'all were talking. So elements of faith, if you will, that's kind of one of the themes that undergirds Dark Intercept. So can you give me a little bit more on that? I'd like to hear from your both of your perspectives, because as I told you before, I like seeing depth in my characters, whether I'm watching a movie or reading a book, because I don't read a whole lot of fiction, so I don't like to waste my time. But the element of faith is not really something that I can recall getting from a book in this genre. Like I can't think of one. I'm sure I could if you gave me an hour, but I just can't think of one off the top of my head. So why does Elements of Faith play such a you know pivotal role for Dark Intercept and eventually the entire Shepherd series? I mean, I mean, there's two answers to that question. One is why we personally wanted to mold it into the book, but also why Tyndale House wanted to have a book like this. I think that we live in a in a world right now with all that's going on um, that is thirsty for some of that deeper elements in even in their fiction. And so, you know, if you think about Christian fiction, you don't think about Tier One or Sons of Valor or even Dark Intercept, right? You think about Amish romance or, you know, the girl in the wagon with the bonnet or, or the left behind or whatever yeah, that kind of stuff. Left yeah. behind, which is an amazing series, but, but you think of those sorts of things. You don't think about, you know, uh, Ludlum and Clancy and Don Bentley and Mark Cameron and Mark Green. That's not who you think of. Um, and I think that what's been fun to watch in, in the Christian fiction market is that shift where they're saying, you know what? There are, we don't have to be so maternalistic. We don't have to protect our poor, innocent readers from this violence and language and stuff like that. Because, you know, I'm a Christian man, but I went and saw the last Bourne movie. I watched all the mission. But like, I live in this world. I'm in the military. I want to be entertained in a realistic way. And I see the Christian fiction market identifying that. And they are like, oh, maybe that's why only... 4% of our readers are men because they don't want to read Amish romance. And so it was cool that our desire to tell this story sort of intersected with uh, this change in the Christian fiction market where they're like, look, we want to just tell good entertaining stories that are not faith centric, but, you know, have a faith element. You know, it doesn't have to be ministerial. We're not trying to change lives. We want to entertain, but we want to do it within a Christian context. And so our passion for this story intersecting at a time in the market where they were looking to grow that was perfect. And so our amazing editor, Karen Watson, who's actually the publisher for fiction at Tyndale, she and her bosses knew that that was a void in the market and were seeking out stuff like this. And so it gave us the perfect platform and opportunity to be able to do that in terms of personally, why we want to write it. It's everything we said before. It's a part of our lives. And, you know, we like to write things that are part of the everyday life experience, just like we did in tier one, just like we did in Sons of Valor. It's another element, but it's just as real for people as anything else. What about you, Brian? I think uh, one of the things is that, you know, your faith is not this static thing. It's not, you know, when you're a kid, you're, you're dragged along to church with your parents, depending on what, you know, faith they are, and you're probably not mature enough to even really contemplate the questions. So you're just sort of along for the ride. You get exposed to some ritual, some dogma, hopefully some meaningful content, you know, and you start thinking about it. But I I don't think that 
it's until you're an adult and you've started to be put into situations where you have your morality. Your morality evolves with you as a person because your morality has to be tested and you have to decide what you think is right and wrong. And, and so I feel like this idea that your faith is this one thing, your whole life is not true. And so we tried to reflect that in Jed's character. I mean, he, he thought his faith was one thing. His faith was challenged. He became disillusioned. He drifted from his faith. And, you know, nobody could tell him how his relationship with God was supposed to be. He has to figure it out for himself. And that's the tough thing, right? You have to figure it out for yourself. So with Jed, that's a very, very important part of this story is him finding his way back to faith and maybe redefining what he understood. Now, we use a lot of metaphor and we're using this supernatural elements to sort of, you know, take this from a, you know, you are going to have to suspend your disbelief in parts of this book. We're going to take it up a notch. But that's by design. That's to sort of get you into the adventure and make you think about things in a way that you haven't thought about before. But at its core, you know, the true message is, you know, faith is not static. Faith is not easy. It's something you have to work on and it's something you have to figure out for yourself. But the Shepherd's organization t teaches Jed that, yes, you have to figure it out for yourself, but you are not alone. And Jed thought he was alone. Right. So even for me to kind of take it up a notch from just when you can talk about faith pretty easily, right? But then when you start talking about spiritual warfare, that's something entirely different. So spiritual warfare is also a theme of the book, but seemingly, right, just reading the tea leaves here, people in general, especially in the church, want nothing to do with that subject, right? It's like, if you talk about sex, everybody shows up. If you talk about money or spiritual warfare, nobody shows up, right? And so um, it's just, it's one of those things that's just really hard for people to talk about because it's weird and it doesn't make us feel cute. It's the reason why we treat Jesus like he's this, this blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, soft featured white guy, as opposed to a rough, gruff, Middle Eastern Jew. It's kind of that, that same same thing. It's like, we don't want the Lion of Judah. That's scary, right. right? We want Lamb of God. We want Jesus to give us a little kiss on our nose as we move <laughs> on without our day. So I guess for both of you, why is spiritual warfare a, a central thing? Because you could have left it faith-based without going to spiritual warfare. Yeah. Well, I think I think for, for us, it was just what you're saying. You know, both of us are, are in uh, church and we're in community with people who don't want to talk about money. They don't, you know, you, you almost quoted Pastor Craig Altman, who leads Grace Family Church, where I, where I serve, uh, you know, no one's showing up for the money talk, no one's showing up for the spirit, but we, but he still gives them every year. Um, and I think that, I think that it sort of ties back to what Brian was saying, you know, your faith is one thing when everything's good. And it's another thing when everything is not so good. And so how do you challenge your faith? You challenge your faith by growing through personal experience, just like Brian was was implying. And part of that unmasks these unseen forces. The, you know, when you have had experiences that you can't explain, when you have seen pure evil or you've seen things that are absolutely miraculous, then it becomes a little bit more difficult to deny this spiritual warfare. This And spiritual warfare is really nothing more than this unseen, relatively unseen battle between good and evil, right? How do you believe in one without the other? Church loves talking about God and Jesus with the, with the perm and the lamb, but they hate talking about the devil, right? For that, because it's just uncomfortable. And uh, now, now it got weird. Now it got weird. Um, 
And so what we tried to do here was we tried to put those elements in in a way that would be exciting but palatable. And so, yeah, there are some supernatural elements in this book. And we were very intentional in doing that because as writers, it elevates the narrative and the excitement. And, you know, we, we have a lot of license, but we worked really hard to frame all of the spiritual warfare elements as crazy as they are in this book in a biblical context. So you won't find anything in the book as outrageous as some of it looks that you can't find scripture to support it at some level. And I'm not saying we didn't take some license. We did, but we actually worked with pastor Chris Bonham at Grace Family Church uh, with um, Father Kevin Yarnell, uh, who's a priest uh, near where I live. And we had them look at it and say, is there anything here that's outrageous? And they're like, yes, there's a lot that's outrageous, but you can find a scripture that at least supports all of it. And that was our goal. We know we're writing fiction, but we wanted it to have at least ties to scripture so that it would be true to biblical truths about spiritual warfare. So I think it's unfortunate that people run away from the talks about spiritual warfare in church. So maybe this is a way to sneak it in, right? Not to trick people into believing or not believing anything, but isn't it always good to be able to have a conversation? And in fact, Mike Moore, uh, another pastor friend of ours, has actually even, he liked the book so much that he wrote a discussion guide for men's groups to use the book as a launch pad to do a three or four week hour long each series on spiritual warfare, taking things from the book and saying, well, what's the truth about that? So that was really cool to us when when Mike offered to do that. That was like, okay, maybe we got it a little bit right or something. But in the end, it's an exciting um, ride, we hope. But we wanted to have some truth in there, at least to the level that it makes people talk. And Brian, what would you say to that whole spiritual warfare aspect of the book? Yeah, I think it's... Um, I think it's a combination of metaphor and also, you know, reality in, in the sense of, like Jeff said, I mean, we're, we're treading the line here, but what we're trying to do is provide um, a vehicle for people to think about topics, like he said, that are maybe uncomfortable. Um, you know, right now, I think it's tough as an American, I think everywhere you learn, everywhere you turn, people are trying to tell you what to think. You know, it's very in your face right now. You need to think this, you know, this person said this and it means X, Y, Z. You're getting it, you know, at work, you're getting it on cable news, you're getting it on television shows, you're getting on social media, maybe you're getting it in your church. Everybody's telling you what to think. We're not trying to tell you what to think in this book. We're trying to take you on a journey and you can decide what you want to think. And that's very, very important for us. And, um... I think, you know, another character who's very important in this story is uh, 12-year-old Sarah Beth Yarnell. And she has a gift, but she's also, her gift is also a metaphor. And we picked this age very intentionally. You know, have you ever noticed how kids, you know, I'll say it as a joke, kids can sense evil. But, you know, mm -hmm. kids, because they're not jaded and cynical uh, they can tell when somebody's a bad person right away. And, and Jeff and I are both fathers. And, you know, I can think back on many occasions where one of my young daughters would say, he wasn't a very nice man. You know, they can pick up on it immediately. And so what is it about that innocence, about that child's perspective 
that we lose as we become an adult. So this idea of Sarah Beth and the watchers and the skills that they have um, sort of is to get you thinking about, you know, why is it that I fail to recognize bad people or evil deeds or how is it that evil can veil itself in, you know, politics or veil itself in a message that, you know, on the surface maybe seems correct, but underneath, you know, in my heart, I think that's wrong. We're not going to tell you what those things are, but I think now more than ever, we need to be thinking about those. We need to have the self-confidence to say, just because somebody is broadcasting a message at me a hundred times a day, if it doesn't sit right with me, then maybe that message is wrong. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing that most people aren't even going to have that internal dialogue right now because we like to find our team and then we like to listen to the podcast and read the books from that team so that the next time we run into somebody from the other team, we could just dunk all over them, right? Like I had a conversation with Mike Ritland and I loved the conversation I had with him. You know, we talked for three hours and he considers himself to be an agnostic and I'm a man of faith, a gospel-driven human being. And the only people that got mad at me for the interview were Christians <laughs> because they wanted me to dunk on him, right? They wanted me to pull out all the apologetics tricks and just really destroy this guy's arguments, right? But it's like, I wanted to go into this argument with the Greg Kokel attitude of, I just want to put a rock in his shoe, right? I, I'm not going to expect for there to be this, you know, tear-filled conversion just because I sat and talked to this guy for a few hours and interacted with him afterwards. So it's that internal dialogue that I think is important. But as we wrap up uh, the, the discussion of the book here, Jeff, I just want to be... Uh, I think it's very important to talk about this because both of you have brought this up, but Jeff, you brought it up more, so you get to take this question. Jeff, you win. But this book touches on the nature and the reality of evil, okay? Another subject matter that people don't like dealing with because I feel like we have so many people societally that are just like, nope, nope, bad things can't happen. I don't need to learn how to fight because I'll never be in a fight. Or if that happens, I'll just call the police or the military can save me or the government can save me or something like that. People don't really want to reckon with the fact that evil is all around us. It is palpable and you can, you can almost pull it out of the air. It's so thick. So Jeff, why does this book also touch on the nature and reality of evil specifically, not just tangentially because you're describing good guys and bad guys? Yeah. So that was something from the very beginning, you know, you look at the title of the series, it's the shepherds, you know, and, and in the, in the Christian uh, community. We think of shepherds. You think of the scripture with Jesus referring to him as a shepherd of sending the disciples out as shepherds in the flock. I mean, the metaphor is very powerful. Um, but somehow we grew away from the idea of what we're shepherding the flock away from. Like if you don't need a shepherd unless there's a wolf, right? If there's no wolves, what do you need a sheepdog for? And somehow I really like what you just described. Somehow we've evolved past this understanding that these things are real. I, I like what Brian said about Sarah Beth because her character is really the linchpin between those two issues because that childlike faith is very powerful in its ability to show us what our relationship with God should be. I think we've all seen that in our children or we've seen it you know, in other ways. Um, but it also is that linchpin towards being able to see and understand evil. Why are they so good at it? I think the answer is because no one told them they weren't supposed to be, but we have been taught that that's silly. That's ridiculous. Oh, don't be crazy. That's thousand year old thinking. Then you go to Iraq and you find a place where they saw the heads off children in front of their parents. And you're like, 
that's not normal behavior. That's not what normal humans do. I don't care about the, you know, man has a bad side. That's more than a bad side. Like that's evil beyond our ability to comprehend. And so I think that dealing with the nature of evil does two things. Like a lot of the things we've talked about. One, it provides tremendous fodder as a creative writer to tell an exciting story. But two, it makes you, like Brian was saying, question what you believe. And that's the element we wanted to add to this book. We wanted people to enjoy the book and get to the end and have questions about what they believe about the nature of evil. You can't fight an enemy that you don't believe in, right? You can't go to Iraq or Afghanistan as a special operator and fight an enemy that you haven't trained to understand and, and how they work and how they think and how they fight. You can't partner with communities in your fight against them. So how can we expect that as you know, men of faith, we can be leading our families and our communities in a, in a spiritual warfare if we don't acknowledge the existence of the, of the other combatant. So that was the element that we wanted to put in here. And I, I think we found the right balance of not being too heavy handed, but keeping it exciting. But hopefully it makes people think. Well, and the thing that I, I love about it is that you're making people reckon with depravity, like real depravity. So I, I love the book by Holly McKay called Only Cry for the Living. She was a journalist on the ground whenever ISIS was taking over parts of the Middle East. And the stories she described are easy for people to look away from. These are not stories that I would really you know, talk about with my wife, but the one most egregious that pops to the top of my head is ISIS. They, they got a piece of sheet metal and they put it outside and they put some sort of a flame underneath it and they were cooking infants. Okay. Now, sure. That's fodder for a story, right? That's fodder for a novel. Can you think of something more depraved? And so for us as Christians, when we're looking at the world and we're trying to reckon with the world and apply the gospel to the world, that's the world that needs to be applied, that it needs to be applied to. Cause those babies had the Imago day. They had the image of God written on them, right? So did the men that were cooking the babies, right? So Yes, I believe that those people should meet a very, very rough end to their lives and that we should send them to their maker quickly to where they can have that discussion amongst themselves. But before I start getting preachy, I know we're running out of time here. So again, we're not going to be able to talk about tier one or Sons of Valor or the W.E.B. Griffin rogue asset novels. All that is going to be in the show notes, guys. You should go check that out. But as we wrap up here, I love doing this and I think this will be great with you guys. I do a segment towards the end of my shows called What Would You Say to Someone That Said? Okay. This is our lightning round, right? So I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said, and I'm going to fill in the blank. It might be funny. It might be a big topic. It might be a critical thing, but you have 30 seconds or less to give me your answer and I will get a buzzer, right? If you start bloviating and going crazy, I will give you the buzzer. But uh, what we're going to do is I got about, Hey, but that's okay. That's okay. I'll just give you the, the big X or whatever. So with the, the first and last one, we'll have you both answer and then we'll kind of switch off in between. So you guys up for it? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so here's the first one here, and uh, we'll have Brian answer first, and then we'll have Jeff. What would you say to someone that said, I want to write a novel? I would say, do your homework first. Talk to other authors, because I can't tell you how many people tell me, I'm working on a book, but they never finish it. So <laughs> if you want to write a book, if you want to write a novel, sit down and write every single day, and then talk to somebody else who's already done it and get some advice. Jeff? Uh, I agree with all of that, and I would add write your book, start to finish. The people that don't write a book and it's been seven years is because they're trying to make every sentence perfect from the first pass. 
novels become novels in in editing and rewrites. So if you want to write a book, you sit down and every day you move the ball down the field. If you're writing three or four pages a day, you can't not write that book in seven or eight months. So that's the way you do it. All right, here we go. Brian, this one's for you. What would you say to someone that said, I hate writing, but I'm good at it? Then I'd say then uh, that's not the business for you. So you should only do, you should only write if you love writing and you love storytelling and expressing your ideas. I think all writers have to be readers first and that's how you learn the, the trade of writing. But how can you be good at something that you don't like? I don't know. All right, next one for you, Jeff. What would you say to someone that said, it's hard for me to follow fiction? Uh, I think you're reading the wrong fiction. So there is so much fiction out there. There is so much, so many genres from things that are pulled right out of the headlines to supernatural thrillers that are just completely out there and bizarre. You keep looking because you will find something. You've got something you're interested in. Find a fiction writer who writes that because fiction mirrors real life when you do it right. All right, you guys are doing just fine. This is great. All right, Brian, next one for you. What would you say to someone that said spy novels are just too repetitive and formulaic? I'd say then you've never read an Andrews and Wilson novel. <laughs> there you go. Hey, you can just leave the answer there. I will allow it because that's a great answer. Jeff, this one's for you. What would you say to someone that said Christians shouldn't write books that have violent or dark themes? I would say that you're living in a fantasy world because Christians and non-Christians live in a world and we're reflecting the world we live in. Um, if you are going to couch everything underneath some maternal veil, then you're A, not going to be that entertaining, but B, you're not going to be able to send whatever message it is. If they don't read your book because it's not interesting, then whatever message you're trying to share gets lost. Brian, next one for you. What would you say to someone that said, I wonder if Andrews and Wilson hate each other sometimes? <laughs> I would say, what would ever lead you to that opinion? We're, look at us. We just exude joy and brotherhood. Yeah, but uh, you know people are watching, so I'm wondering what's going to happen right after this. Like whenever I hit the stop recording button, it's going to be like, why'd you say that? You're so stupid. Why'd you do that? You're just like my father. Like, hey, there, there's a lot of options here. So I'm assuming you guys are friends, but I'm assuming that 800 miles of separation does help from time to time as well. All right, Jeff, uh, this is the last solo one here. What would you say to someone that said, Andrews and Wilson need to stop writing about SEALs so much and start writing about other special operators like Delta Force, Green Beret, Marine, Recon, etc.? I would say that that's probably not an unfair thing to say. We do write about what we know, and I spent my time in Naval Special Warfare. But keep reading because we have been growing our brand. When you read Webb Griffin's uh, Rogue Asset, you're going to find way fewer Navy SEALs. You're going to find a lot of other. We have a uh, Marine uh, Special Operator as our main character there. So stick with us. Don't give up. Well, apparently SEALs can't do anything after they get out of the SEALs other than write books. Apparently that's the only thing they're good at is kind of what I'm seeing. So, all right, this is the last one and it's going to be for both of you. So Brian first and then Jeff, what would you say to someone that said, I haven't read a book since high school and I don't plan to? I would say now's the time to start because the industry and the talent has never been better. This is a, the, when you are bombarded with television where you don't have any control and ability to use your imagination. Um, now's the time to dive into a book because it's an experience that's completely different from television. 
All right, Jeff, close us out. I will say that, um, you know, I'm willing to accept that there are readers and non-readers, but there is a book out there for everybody. So I'm not, you may never become that guy that reads three books a week. That's okay. But find something because you got to let your imagination run free every now and then. Absolutely. That's one of the dumbest things I can hear a man say is I don't need to read a book. What's a book going to give me? And I just, I don't understand that at all. But guys, we've gone everywhere in this conversation. We didn't get to talk about the other series as much as I would have liked, but I'm glad we got to spend as much time on Dark Intercept. But is there anything else either one of you want to get off your chest? Only thing I want to say is please check out our website if you have the time, andrews-wilson.com. Not only do we have our books there, we also have links to other authors and our partners, organizations that are run, uh, founded and run by veterans. Uh, Supporting the veteran small business community is one of our missions. So please go there, check it out. Check out the products, Bone Frog Coffee, Bottle Breacher, Combat Flags. These are all great organizations. Yeah, I'll make sure all that's in the show notes. What about you, Jeff? Anything else? Yeah, I mean, just to just to echo what he's saying, our what we try to do with our platform is make the world a little bit better. What else is there that you can do? And one of our passions is to uh, lift up our fellow veterans. If you're a fellow veteran and you need a, a hand up, you know, you didn't leave all your teammates behind when you left the military. Everybody's still out there. So reach out. And if it needs to be to us, we're here. We're ready to respond. We'll make sure that we can facilitate that. Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Loved being here. Thanks for having us. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Andrews and Wilson. I know I had a great time with those guys, and we're probably going to be doing more stuff with them in the future, so buckle in for that. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, at Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness, and specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast and these interviews that help you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got the links to the Andrews and Wilson website. Amazon, Facebook, and Twitter pages. Those are going to be the best way to connect with those guys and stay up to date on their information. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song, Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.